ACOG's last practice bulletin on asthma and pregnancy, which was ACOG practice bulletin number 90, was back in February 2008. Yup, 2008. So, no advances since then? There's been big shifts in the management of asthma, of course, and that's why we're doing this episode. Things move so fast, and it's often hard for guidelines to keep up the pace. But that's what we're here for. And that's why it's important to always stay ahead of the data. Are you aware that new recommendations are out from Gina? And have you even heard of Gina? (laughs) Gina really is a big voice in terms of asthma care. We're going to talk about it in this episode. And it has actually changed the way that we view short-acting beta agonist therapy, known as SABA, of course that's S-A-B-A, as solo medication. And what about antepartum fetal surveillance? Is that indicated in moderate to severe asthma? After all, maternal asthma is not listed on the indications for outpatient fetal surveillance from ACOG's 2021 committee opinion. Should it be there? Can biologics be used for asthma? Well, we've got lots to cover in this episode. So take a deep breath in and out and let's get started. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, let's first start with the obvious. Yes, ACOG's last practice bulletin was in 2008. Um, weird, right? Now, if you would think, well, ha- w- there's so many things that have happened. Biologics, uh, new recommendations. Um, where's all that stuff? Well, wait a minute. The truth is a lot of these changes really are relatively new, but not like new as of like six months ago. I mean, these things happen really starting in, in 2019, uh, with the first set of changes from the global initiative for asthma. And that's Gina. We're going to get into that in just a minute. Um, but yeah, I wonder why really they haven't had an update. There's a lot of new things that have happened. Biologics are out. Of course, we'll talk about that in a minute. So I don't know, but it is what it is. But asthma in pregnancy, I don't want that to get overlooked because it's so easy for diabetes to get all the attention and hypertension and growth restriction. And those are all super important. However, there's some data that this chronic inflammatory state that is asthma can actually predispose patients for fetal growth restriction and hypertensive disorders. And in some studies, not all, 
uh, impaired glucose tolerance. So this has been the big switch here, all right? Uh, so let me just set the stage that asthma, we always kind of viewed it as, oh, the pipes are getting kind of narrow, so it's obstructive, uh, you know, uh, lung disease because it's airway hyperreactivity. We get that, and that's all correct. But at the heart of asthma is this issue, guys, and this is how these new guidelines have changed to address this. It, it's this baseline elevated level of chronic inflammation. Yes, obviously it starts in the lungs, but we know what starts in the lungs doesn't stain the lungs because that chronic inflammation then goes systemic uh, with the biochemical cascade. Same thing with uh, gingival health, right? So we know that bad gingiva in pregnancy uh, and tooth decay and gingival disease, that leads to a pro-inflammatory condition. Well, it's not just in the mouth. Those things obviously lead to system-wide inflammatory uh, responses that set up for adverse issues. It's the same thing here with asthma. So the big switch here is that the flashlight, the spotlight, is now looking at and putting its focus, focusing on treatment, on that inflammatory state of asthma. Yes, beta-2 agonists like albuterol is still a thing. However, it's it's got to be that plus something else. And I'm going to explain that because that's the big shift here for asthma medication. And there's some warnings, again, using albuterol uh, by itself long term that that potentially could be bad. OK, so there's a lot of things that we've learned here. So anyway, just setting the stage here uh, as we get ready to launch into into the asthma discussion. All right, so asthma, of course, is the most common respiratory disorder affecting women during pregnancy. Now, even though it's always defined as a reversible disease, it does have some adverse effects both on maternal quality of life and some negative effects on perinatal outcomes, especially in cases uh, of severe or suboptimally managed cases. All right, so we're going to talk about all this. Respiratory symptoms and signs that characterize asthma vary over time and in the same person and can vary in intensity, and they're often worse at night. So that's a big flag here for patients who say, oh, it's just difficult for me to breathe, and they're like 38 weeks. It's so easy for us to go, yeah, that's called dyspnea of pregnancy. I mean, your your diaphragm is squished up uh, to your tonsils because uh, of the large child. So yes, we get that. But if we don't really do our due diligence and identify patients correctly and take the time just to ask them a little bit more. So, okay, tell me about that. So you can't breathe well? Well, what does that mean? Well, I just get kind of winded sometimes, but yeah, I can still breathe in and out. Okay, that's great. But you've got to dive in. Hey, does this happen at night? Is there a lot of cough with it? Do you feel like you're like you're whistling in your chest when you try to breathe out? Um, th those are all flags. Remember that asthma has no problem getting air in. Okay, it is a problem getting air out. It's it's that type of obstructive disease. Uh, especially uh, getting air out quickly. That's the whole definition of FEV1, which we're going to talk about in a minute. All to say, pay attention to when patients say, hey, I, I can't breathe well. It's not all just dyspnea of pregnancy. Some of that may be undiagnosed asthma. Remember, guys, that asthma could be triggered by a variety of things from environmental factors, upper respiratory tract infections can do it, exercise can do it, smoking, of course, is a big offender. So it's important for patients to know when they do have asthma 
what their likely offending issues are so they can avoid those. That makes sense, right? Exacerbations of asthma represent a major clinical problem during pregnancy. Based on observational data, asthma exacerbations tend to be more common between 17 and 24 weeks of gestation, but of course it can happen all throughout pregnancy. And we need to be on the lookout for when patients say that this difficulty breathing is persistent, recurrent, or getting worse. And remember, here's a big clinical pearl, remember to ask about cough. Now, not all patients who cough have asthma, I get that. Uh, and some patients sometimes uh, even reflux disease, GERD, uh, can trigger a cough. But when they combine cough with the shortness of breath issue and then this history of potentially wheezing, wheezing, those are all high red flags to be on the lookout for asthma. All right. Now, traditionally, yes, you could send them for pulmonary function tests. That's very legit. But sometimes just history by themselves and clinical response to medication, which we're talking about in a minute, which, of course, we're talking about inhaled medication. If they get better with that, then that can make the presumed diagnosis of asthma. So if you've got an opportunity and they can uh, and they can afford to get seen for uh, for pulmonary function tests, then absolutely do it for spirometry. However, and ACOG says this is legit, in some patients where the clinical picture is consistent with asthma, uh, who can't go for pulmonary function tests, or even whose test there is, is inconclusive, yes, it's reasonable to just offer them empiric treatment. It's low risk and potentially can help. Remember, that's our same adage here. Um, taking inhaled a short-acting beta agonist and a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid is really low risk and it can only help. And that's the whole purpose here that Gina made in their statement uh, in 2021, which is, guys, we're not doing a good job of diagnosing this. It goes overlooked. And and we've got to not only identify it, but give them proper treatment. And if you notice, I said short-acting beta agonist with low-dose inhaled corticosteroid not just the SABA by itself. The SABA is the short-acting beta agonist, all right? I'm going to explain why in a minute, and that's a big paradigm shift here. Because for years, guys, I'm talking about what? I mean, it's uh, 20 years. I said, oh, we've got, you know, infrequent or intermittent asthma. We're going to talk about the different classes here in a minute. In a minute. Uh, hey, no worries. Here's your albuterol inhaler. Use it when you need it. Uh, and now we have evidence that while that totally will work, long term, that is not good because long term, that could cause not only a refractory cases of asthma, in other words, eventually just gets pissed off as like, ha, beta 2 agonist, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, so it could become refractory and or it could actually set up this paroxysmal state of inflammation. And the data out there is it's it's just like, wow, I didn't know that they could do that. I'm going to show you that in a minute, all right? So the, the big switch here is that asthma, we're not just talking about a, the, the pipes and them narrowing as a hyperreactive state, but more of that, that, inf that inflammatory acknowledgement, which we've always known. That's why you do uh, some, uh, some things that modify that, like uh, leukotriene inhibitors, of course, the steroids, we get that. But now it's frontline, right? Before it was only add those things if the albuterol by itself doesn't work. But Gina now says, no, 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 they should not be using Saba by themselves. Saba by themselves, bad. Saba plus low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, good.
All right, podcast family, I'm sure you've heard the one-third rule for asthma in pregnancy. Have you not heard that? If you haven't, then it is a thing. I'm telling you now, right? The one-third rule. That's that observational data that says that a third of asthmatics will stay the same in their pregnancy severity. Uh, a third will have their severity get worse. And then the third will actually experience uh, an improvement. Um, like, well, that's cool. Okay. So it's the third rule. Okay. A third get worse. A third stay the same. Uh, and then a third get better from their baseline. But where did that actually come from? Where is this third rule? I mean, who said that? Well, it is a thing that was published back in 1988 in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. I know you all subscribe to that. Boy, that just sounds boring, doesn't it? The Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Anyway, that was done by Schatz et al. And the title of that publication, that was a prospective analysis on the course of asthma during pregnancy, postpartum, and with successive pregnancies. So that third rule goes back to 1988. Okay, everyone. So I'm actually on call, so I brought my little mic with me. And I'm doing this at the hospital. I had to change my uh, my venue. So hope this works. Let's see how far I can get before they call me. But anyway, back to the message. So, of course, pregnancy and asthma is a two-way relationship street, right? Pregnancy affects asthma and asthma can affect the pregnancy. So let's do how pregnancy affects asthma first. Pregnancy in and of itself is tough for anybody, but the normal anatomical changes that happen with a pregnancy obviously put an additional strain on an asthmatic patient. So let's do this kind of in series, all right? Now, we're also going to talk about all the different initials like uh, FRC and VC, all the stuff, and TLC, not like the learning channel, uh, but TLC, like total lung capacity, stuff that we remembered in, in medical school and, and nursing school. Uh, and these things are real. So we're going to quickly do it, but it won't be boring, I promise. All right. First thing is the most obvious is the progressive uterine growth and distension, which lifts up the diaphragm. Now, I always find this interesting that based on anatomical studies, based on x-ray models, this is four centimeters elevation of the diaphragm by the third trimester. Guys, four centimeters. That's a lot. I mean, four centimeters, two centimeters would be a lot. But four centimeter uh, elevation of the diaphragmatic level by the third trimester. There's also an increase of the subcostal angle by 50%, and the chest diameter goes up to 2 centimeters beyond its baseline. Crazy, right? So those are real anatomical issues. So that's why dyspnea of pregnancy is a big thing. But imagine those changes, of course, with a patient with brittle asthma. We're talking about moderate or severe. That's why these issues are, are really a big deal. Then, of course, there's the upper respiratory tract mucosal edema, there's hyperemia, there's capillary congestion, and all of these things affect uh, the breathing capacity. Now, all the above-mentioned changes lead to alterations of lung volumes. So get ready, because here comes all the initials, right? Here comes the FRC and the VC and the ERC, all stuff that we've learned before, but trust me, it won't be boring. Okay, so you take those changes and mainly that, that increase in the diaphragm and you get a decrease in functional residual capacity by about 
All right. So functional residual capacity, because now the, the lungs are basically compressed, is decreased by up to 20%. But diaphragmatic excursion does remain unchanged. So the vital capacity, the VC, is maintained. Okay, so functional residual capacity goes down in normal pregnancy, but vital capacity is maintained. Then the expiratory reserve volume, the ERV, decreases because, again, the lungs are compressed. So there's also, remember, just like there's a decrease in FRC, the functional residual capacity, there's a decrease in the expiratory reserve volume. The inspiratory reserve volume, the IRV, is also reduced in early pregnancy, but it increases back to baseline in the third trimester. Now, here's the last clinical pearl with all these uh, uh, initials because this is how testing is done and why testing is still valid in pregnancy. The forced expiratory volume in one second, FAV1, as well as the peak expiratory flow, right? that's why you have your peak flow meter, all of those are basically unaffected by normal pregnancy, all right? So FEV1 and peak flow and even TLC, the total lung capacity, all of that is essentially unaffected by normal pregnancy. Okay, also remember this clinical pearl that respiratory rate has no significant variation during healthy pregnancy. Now, hold on. Did you hear that? Because I know someone's going to go, wait a minute, tachypnea of pregnancy is a thing. Correct. Absolutely right. But that respiratory rate that does increase is still within the normal range. So remember that a healthy normal respiratory rate is about 12 to 20 breaths per minute at rest. But any rate that's greater than 24 breaths per minute is abnormal and needs to be investigated. So let's explain this. All right. Progesterone in pregnancy, totally, everybody gets that, we get it. It rises, of course, and that's responsible for stimulating the respiratory center of the medulla and increasing the respiratory frequency. But while the rate may be on the higher end of normal, it's still in the normal range. And that's the same thing that goes for heart rate. Remember we had talked about in the past um, that tachycardia in pregnancy is still tachycardia for anybody, but the pulse does rise from a baseline, let's say of 80 to like 90, but tachycardia in pregnancy is still tachycardia, same as anybody else. It's a heart rate above 100. Although pathological tachycardia is obviously something greater than 110 or 120 based on their physical conditioning uh, and their baseline rate. So tachycardia is tachycardia in pregnancy and outside of pregnancy, and tachypnea, tachypnea inside of pregnancy and outside of pregnancy. So if you ever asked, does does pregnancy affect the respiratory rate? It's kind of a trick question because it's yes, but no. <laughs> so yes, it, it increases the respiratory rate because progesterone hits the, the respiratory center in the brain. Uh, but even though the rate is increased, it's still typically maintained within the normal range. See, that's a good clinical pearl. Moving on. All right, so pregnancy can affect asthma. Yes, and asthma can affect pregnancy. So asthma is an independent marker for some potential adverse neonatal outcomes. But this is tricky because the relative rates are so varied in the data. Because why, guys? What's the big variable here? What's the degree of asthma uh, complication, right? The degree of asthma severity. So if somebody has intermittent asthma, not mild persistent, just Intermittent, like, yeah, I guess I have asthma. Sometimes I get short of breath, like, uh, you know, once every two weeks, and then it goes away, last couple of seconds. Obviously, their risk is going to be much lower 
than somebody who has moderate persistent. So that's why the relative risks are, are all over the place in the data. So if somebody asks, well, well, how much is it affected? Well, that totally depends on the severity of the asthma. But we definitely know that asthma absolutely affects to some degree some pregnancy outcomes. This was published back in 2011 uh, by Murphy et al., who published a meta-analysis that took a look at the data from 1975, my goodness, to 2009. That's a lot of work. And they looked at the potential risks or adverse perinatal outcomes in women with asthma, okay? Now, what they found was that maternal asthma increased the risk of these issues, low birth weight, um, uh, fetal growth restriction, preterm labor, and even preeclampsia. Now, some other studies showed that it had an increased risk of gestational diabetes because, again, of that background inflammation that's the hallmark of all asthma. And oddly enough, another study found that moderate to severe asthmatics had also an increased risk of DVT above the baseline increased risk that pregnancy gives. And why? It all has to do with that baseline inflammatory response. That meta-analysis that took a look at the data from the 70s to uh, the early 2000s by Murphy was published in BJOG. Again, that was in 2011. And then the other study that I just quoted was out of 2019 in the Journal of Maternal and Neonatal Medicine. And that was published by Baglaff. Okay, Baglaff is the one who showed the increased rate of uh, venous thromboembolic events in asthmatics. But here's, here's the winning pearl, all right? Here's the good news. With appropriate treatment and control of asthma, those baseline risks tend to go back to the baseline population norm. So if somebody ever asks, hey, are the medications safe in pregnancy? Absolutely. Asthma by itself we know is bad. And these medications, especially inhaled, because they're not truly systemic, that there may be some systemic absorption from the lungs, but it's very, very small. Inhaled medications, either SABA or uh, LABA, which is long-acting beta agonist, and uh, low-dose um, inhaled corticosteroids are absolutely safe. We're going to talk about biologics in a minute, all right? But the idea is that all asthma therapy absolutely is required to get ahead of severe exacerbations to try to reduce adverse outcomes. And this is why we have to educate patients again about, uh, especially asthmatics, that if you have an asthma attack that's progressively getting worse uh, in, in their frequency, or if you just can't catch your breath and the typical SABA, short-acting beta agonist by itself, is not working, that's because you, we're, we're doing it wrong. You should not use a SABA by itself. It should be with a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. And it's important to seek care quickly. That's the big issue here. Asthma medications do reduce adverse outcomes. And that was published by Lim et al. That's L-I-M, Lim et al. in the journal Chest in 2014. Okay, so that showed, hey, treatment seems to be safe, definitely prevents adverse issues. So we do have to get ahead of this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, everyone, now we're going to get into the specifics on management. Now, I want to focus on antepartum management as maintenance therapy, okay? So what to give patients as prevention so they don't get into a severe asthmatic issue. We're going to talk about acute management in a minute, uh, but that's pretty straightforward, right? That's you give somebody IV fluids, you give them a supplemental O2, uh, you give them uh, um, uh, aerosolized or, or nebulized uh, short-acting beta-2 agonist, and remember that for an acute asthma episode that's hard to break, you can always add, and it's you should add, uh, an inhaled corticosteroid. Sometimes you can do uh, systemic corticosteroids if necessary, although oral corticosteroids are not first line. They do have a place if you cannot break the symptoms. And remember that IV mag sulfate, yep, just like for preeclampsia, Magnesium sulfate does have some efficacy in difficult-to-treat asthma acutely, all right? So that's a big plus. Yes, I like – I know it's controversial. Some people get a, a routine ABG. Some don't. Uh, I like that because it lets you see the degree of CO2 trapping. Remember that in pregnancy, because of the uh, that normal tachypnea of pregnancy – that they can have a compensated respiratory alkalosis. So if the CO2 uh, is, is normal, that's abnormal in pregnancy. Don't forget that because CO2 normally decreases a little bit in pregnancy. So if their CO2 is normal, PCO2, that actually could be a sign of CO2 retention. So remember to look at, look at your numbers uh, and again, same thing with their pH. If their pH is stone cold normal in pregnancy, that's a little off because they should have a compensated respiratory uh, uh, alkalosis. So that's why you got to look at these numbers, all right? Um, the other thing is that uh, some people do get the CB, the ABG, some don't. I think it's helpful. Same thing with chest x-ray. It's kind of controversial. I mean, if they have classic wheezing, they know that it's asthma. I don't think a chest x-ray adds any value. And that's pretty much what uh, expert opinion uh uh, maintains, of course, if they're just not breaking their uh, their symptomatology, then I mean it can't hurt, and maybe you can find something else. But in general, a chest X-ray with a known history of asthma is not going to add much value. This issue of management of asthma is really a big deal because we're trying to prevent patients from getting that acute exacerbation, okay, and going through that rescue algorithm uh, to restore normal breathing function. And as we talk about maintenance, remember that there's some medications that we can give sometimes during pregnancy trying to help one thing, and it can actually unmask the other. So as a quick clinical pearl, remember that labetalol, which we typically use for management of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, 
that labetol has been known, especially in, in brittle asthmatics, has been known to potentially uh, trigger bronchospasm. So labetol and asthma it really should not be used together unless you really have to. So it's always a good idea to ask before you give labetol, uh, which is the preferred medication antepartum for asthma, hey, uh, are, we're totally okay with giving labetol with you. You don't have a history of asthma, right? Always good to double check. Oh my goodness, I think it was like two years ago where we had a patient, I was on call, and we had a teen patient who came in with a known history of asthma that was very difficult to control. Well, of course, she came in on status asthmaticus. And I mean, bad. Uh, so she ended up intubated. She required a ketamine sedation because there is some data. You can look up ketamine sedation for status asthmaticus. Maybe that can be another episode later. But she had a lot of morbidity and stayed on that vent for some time. So this is this is a big issue, guys, and she was a teen, okay, a teenager. So this is why I wanted to focus on better maintenance control because if we can get good maintenance control and it's not just SABA by itself. I already mentioned that. That's the big uh, change in, in Gina's recommendations. We're about to get into that in a minute. Then we can try to prevent these adverse issues. And it even is for those that are intermittent. So in the past, it was, oh, you only have, you know, kind of intermittent, not even mild persistent, just intermittent asthma, super mild, just use your albuterol PRN. But Gina says, hey, based on the data, that's a terrible recommendation because if they have an asthma episode, then you've got to treat that baseline inflammation, okay? And so we've been thinking about it wrong the entire time. Remember, we'd always focus just on the tube. Tube is narrow. We've got to make it bigger. Uh, and, and we can. We can force it open with a beta-2 agonist, a short-acting beta-2 agonist. But it doesn't address the underlying inflammation. And then you have this, this stepwise progressive uh, ways of therapy, okay? So that's the GINA protocols. It's like step one is just intermittent. All right, that's PRN, SABA, and together with a, a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. They've got to go together. Then if you have mild persistence, then you can switch to a LABA, a long-acting beta agonist, along with your low-dose inhaled corticosteroids. So the foundation now, guys, this new shift is is it don't just tell your patients just you have your albuterol inhaler, you'll be fine. No, that low-dose inhaled corticosteroid with every use of SABA uh, is the ideal. And if their symptoms are progressive, then you got to switch to a long-acting beta agonist uh, and keep that low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. So it's this stepwise progression, step one, step two, step three. But this is where Gina has has kind of changed the shift because in the past, like we mentioned, it was just SABA by itself for intermittent uh, episodes. But no, no more. Now everybody at all degrees of of asthma, of all severities, uh, the Global Initiative for Asthma, GINA, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, uh, recommends uh, that inhaled corticosteroids. And if it's definitely mild persistent or moderate persistent, it's not just with the beta-2 agonist, it should be daily use of that short-acting uh, I'm sorry, of that low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Shorter answer is, what's the big change? Well, Gina, since 2019, has put the emphasis on asthma is an inflammatory condition. The reactive airway is the end result of that. So w w while treating that is absolutely right, we got to get behind that. B b the first domino that falls is that inflammation. We've got to tackle that since that pro-inflammatory response spells adverse neonatal outcomes. 
So we've already alluded to the big change here, right? The, the GINA recommendation of, of use of an inhaled low-dose corticosteroid. Before I go in, a little bit more into that detail, remember that asthma in general has four main degrees of severity. Intermittent, which we've already discussed, mild, persistent, moderate, persistent, and then, of course, severe. And those are all based on the amounts, the frequency of the attacks, the severity of each attack, and also on objective measures like the uh, the FEV1 score and or what percent max of their peak expiratory flow on their um, on their peak flow meter, what they're reaching, all right? So uh, in general, a severe is when they have less than 60% of their peak flow reading uh, at, at bedside testing, okay? So uh, intermittent, mild, persistent, moderate, persistent, and then severe based on characteristics of the attack and then objective things like the FEV1 score and or their peak flow performance. We've already mentioned GINA a couple of times. That is the global initiative for asthma. That is G-I-N-A. Like, how do you get GINA from that? Easy. G is global. The initiative is I-N. And then asthma, GINA. And that's why asthma gets a little confusing because there's a lot of voices talking in this space. Okay? They're all authoritative. So if somebody says, what is one authoritative voice for asthma? You're like, one? No way, man. There's too many, uh, as there should and that's why things get confusing. And that's why ACOG really is like, hey, we've got plenty of societies on there. Uh, I think we're good until some massive update happens, which it's, it's that time now because of the use of biologics. All right. But in general, in terms of the voices in the asthma space, there's the National Asthma Council, the NAC. Then there's the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program. That's via the NIH. Ooh, and then there's the quadruple AI. Like, what is that? Well, the quadruple AI is the A-A-A-A-I. That's why it's the quadruple AI. That's the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. All right. And then, of course, we have what we've already discussed, the Global Initiative for Asthma, or GINA. Now, we're going to get into a little bit more of the GINA guidelines here just for a moment because I, I do want to explain that baseline inflammation thing, but we've already alluded to those changes, okay? That first started in 2019 and then had a formal update at the end of 2020 into 2021. But GINA is nothing new. This global initiative started in 1993 as part of a, a World Health Organization program, as well as the U.S. Uh, National Heart and Lung and the Blood Institute. And that was very easy. Their goal was a global way to educate, better identify, and treat asthma. Hence, GINA, the Global Initiative for Asthma. All right, remember, guys, what we're talking about here are the different opinions, the different flavors of treatments or treatment opinions for asthma. But no matter who you listen to, they all agree asthma medications are two main categories. So we have maintenance medications, a.k.a. controller meds. That's like the low-dose inhaled corticosteroids, so controller medications, and then rescue therapy. So that's it. Two main classes of asthma meds, controller, a.k.a. maintenance, and then rescue medications. The SABA of choice, of course, historically and still continues to be the short-acting beta agonist is still things like albuterol. That's totally fine. And then the LABA, the long-acting beta agonist of choice in the U.S. is salmeterol. All right, so you have albuterol and then salmeterol. Uh, so the short-acting and then the long-acting. 
those are the 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 types of beta agonists either and again both are are types of rescues except of course the short acting albuterol is quick and then the salmeterol is a little bit longer acting gina's main point here is that just using short acting beta agonists by themselves uh, is worrisome and the reason is, if you don't hit that inflammatory response, you can actually develop resistance to short-acting beta agonists. And in some studies, actually has led to an increase uh, in death. You're like, well, well, how long-term do you have to do it? Well, a long-term. But but that is, is that crazy or what? And if you take a look at the uh, GINA guidance, the, the update from 2020, and of course, I'll post the link to that, it's very clear here that use of albuterol or any SABA long-term by itself, and for number one, doesn't work as well. It works much better when combined with a low-dose corticosteroid. But more importantly, there is data that that can actually increase the risk of chronic health morbidities, even with those guys. Here it is. Here, Watch this. With intermittent asthma. That's not even malpersistent. So even for those who get it every so often, kind of rare, the use of albuterol or short-acting beta agonists, SABAs by themselves, is linked to adverse outcomes in life. So, so that's the big take-home there. Should you use albuterol? Absolutely. Should you use it by itself? No. Always with a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. This, there's a very nice review that covers all of this, and that was published just last year in 2022 in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. That first author is Reddell, R-E-D-D-E-L. Again, 2022, American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care. So that's the big move here. That's the big change that short-acting beta agonists should never be used by themselves, which is how I train. Ah, take your albuterol inhaler. Always keep it with you. You'll be fine. But that doesn't work as well and potentially could be harmful. And just in, in the in the uh, on the one end, it's just building up resistance to it. So never use it by itself. Oh, sorry, guys. So, guys, sorry, guys. We mentioned the short-acting beta agonist of choice and the long-acting beta agonist of choice, but we didn't talk about the preferred uh, low-dose inhaled corticosteroid of choice. In the U.S., especially in pregnancy, even though there's a lot of other options, it's uh, butanicide, all right? So butanicide is the inhaled corticosteroid of choice in pregnancy. Other medications, if you have to add, like um, uh, Montelukast, uh, leukotriene inhibitors, all of those definitely are okay. They're not considered first line, but you got to do what you got to do. So things in, using those other options like uh, Advair, Singular, totally okay. But remember, that's either a SABA or a LABA with a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Hang in there with me, guys. We're almost at the end here, but no discussion on asthma would be complete without talking about the methylxanthines. Remember those things? Theophylline, amniophylline. Yeah, those things are still out there. They're very historic, but not really favored because they're kind of tricky, especially in pregnancy. Plus, you got to monitor drug levels of these two medications. So methylxanthine use, theophylline, uh, amniophylline is is only used if in a pinch and you have to that's like third line all right so definitely not first or second there's also this weird potential for fetal tachycardia uh, and fetal irritability at birth 
So definitely uh, not uh, your go-to. So methylxanthines, yep, check the box. We talked about it. They're in my back pocket. I'm going to keep them there until I really have to use it. Plus, glucocorticoids are much more effective than theophylline uh, for persistent asthma in the non-pregnant patient. And the same seems to go in the pregnant patient. Oh boy, we got to start wrapping this up because we still got to talk about biologics, which we're going to do very quickly, uh, and then endopartum fetal surveillance because that's a little tricky one, all right? I'm going I'm to explain that in a minute. It's not tricky as to whether yes or no to do, but tricky where you find the info. I'm going to explain in a minute. But of course, I do have to, you know, I can't leave mental xanthine discussion without talking about my favorite mental xanthine. What is my favorite methyl xanthine? What's the most common methylxanthine that's like on every street corner uh, in the U.S. and international? And I actually like it with a little bit of milk. So, yep, remember that caffeine is a typical uh, over-the-counter and commercial methylxanthine. So all these things are in the same family. Hence, why that's why you get the fetal tachycardia and a little bit of fetal um, irritation and irritability at delivery. So, yes, never forget that methylxanthine and caffeine are the same thing. This brings us to the newer meds, the biologics, the monoclonal antibodies, and the variety of leukotriene blockers and all the other flavors that are out there. Now, remember that there's a variety of of of, in, of immunotherapies, okay? And so they're not all the same. But in general, the subcutaneous immunotherapies seem to be okay, even though there's no direct studies in pregnancy. They're all in, in case reports and in safety databases. Uh, but uh, if the patient is already on them, aka, let's say like Dupixent, which is uh, FDA approved for atopic dermatitis and asthma. You see the link there, guys? You're like, oh, atopic dermatitis and asthma. Why is that same medication the same for both? Because it has to do with that pro-inflammatory cascade, okay? So that, see, guys, that, this is so important. This whole inflammatory leukotriene issue is at the heart of asthma. So if we're not treating that with a corticosteroid, we're, we're missing its value. So inhaled corticosteroids is a take-home message of this episode. So the short of it is, even though there's limited data, if the patient is already on it and well-controlled, please do not take them off it. Now, yes, that is off-label. I get that because there's no direct pregnancy data. But even ACOG states that in its 2008 bulletin. So it states, Quote, a patient who is receiving a maintenance or near-maintenance dose not experiencing adverse reactions to the injection and apparently deriving clinical benefit, continuation of immunotherapy is recommended, end quote. All right, and if you take a look at the published uh, patient databases that have used these medications, no major congenital issues, no major... Uh, fetal outcomes in a negative way. So they seem to be okay. Although, of course, with shared decision making and working with as a multidisciplinary team, the allergist and or pulmonologist or whoever wrote for this medication. However, it's not advised to just start that de novo in pregnancy unless you really have to. All right. And that's just because it's better to go into pregnancy already on it than start it. It's not a contraindication. It's just there's just no data for that. Um, by the way, I, I did mention Dupixent just by name because I do have firsthand experience with that, although I have no financial disclosure. But as a personal disclosure, my daughter has a severe history of atopic uh, dermatitis that has been very well controlled now for, gosh, three years on Dupixent. 
So I'm just referencing that because she's still on this injection, poor thing. And I'm thinking about this thing as she gets, you know, pregnant down the way, later down the way, okay, because she's 18, later, much later down the road. Um, And I'm thinking, man, should we take her off of it or not? So I've been looking at this medication uh, and immunotherapy for a while now uh, and and pregnancy, and, and I'm very reassured by the data. So just to be clear, this is specifically for subcutaneous immunotherapy for asthma or SCIT. Yep, that's a thing. S-C-I-T is subcutaneous immunotherapy. And SCIT uh, seems to be okay for patients who get pregnant once they're already on these medications. Well, that brings us to our last question about fetal surveillance with asthma. Woohoo! So we're bringing up the, the tail end here. We're about to cross the finish line, guys. And this is where it gets tricky, all right? Now, just to be clear, I, I'm doing this episode, uh, of course, to keep everybody informed on, on the GINA protocol and, and the, the issue on inhaled uh, low-dose uh, corticosteroid. But this came to, uh, to our attention when a buddy of mine uh, sent me a Facebook message and said, hey, I'm having this conversation with my coworker. And I thought that asthma is totally legit to do antepartum fetal testing at 32 weeks because they're at risk of growth restriction. But if you take a look at the ACOG clinical opinion uh, for indications for outpatient fetal surveillance, which is committee opinion 828, remember that was back in 2021, asthma is not there under maternal conditions. So which one is it? Oh, that's a good question, right? So let's be very clear. Asthma, that is suboptimally controlled or trying to control it. Uh, it's just having a lot of breakthrough episodes. Absolutely a risk factor for fetal growth restriction, uh, preterm birth, uh, and low birth weight. So absolutely, ACOG does say to measure fetal weight with serial rate of growth ultrasounds starting at 32 weeks. And of course, uh, looking for antepartum fetal surveillance. But my friend was absolutely right. That is not in the ACOG committee opinion 828 for indications for fetal surveillance. Asthma is not on the list. Uh, So where's that coming from? You have to go back to the 2008 practice bulletin because that's where that information is. In that original ACOG practice bulletin from 2008, it states, quote, Ultrasound examination and antenatal fetal testing should be considered for women who have moderate or severe asthma during pregnancy. Aha! You see, I said this in the intro. This is why it's important to get information from multiple sources. Now, in this case, it's actually one parent source, ACOG, but different sources of publication. Because in that original practice bulletin back from 2008, clearly spelled out, absolutely an indication for endopartum fetal surveillance if it's anything past mild persistent disease, all right? But it's not in committee opinion 828. Well, why not? Well, because that list is not meant to be all-inclusive uh, of everything. I mean, you just, you just can't. It's a guide, okay? So just because it's not on there uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You see that? So in this case, my friend was right and his coworker was right. Well, no, because it's not on the list, but yes, because it's in the original committee opinion. So the answer is yes. Do antepartum fetal surveillance for anything beyond malpersistent disease starting at 32 weeks. And it's not just fetal surveillance. It's also... Uh, rate of growth ultrasounds because of that tie, that association with low birth weight and fetal growth restriction. 
We've covered antepartum fetal surveillance, which means that we're getting ready for delivery. A quick word about intrapartum management. Thankfully, 90% of asthmatics will not experience an acute exacerbation during labor and delivery. That's kind of cool, but 10% may. So make sure that they have uh, with them their short-acting beta agonist therapy as rescue along with their inhaled uh, low-dose corticosteroids. Now, remember, of course, that hyperventilation during labor can cause bronchoconstriction. So it's important to educate the patient to try to avoid that and have controlled breathing if possible. Also remember that pain is a known trigger for exacerbations of asthma. So analgesia should be maintained during labor and delivery with epidurals being the preferred option. Yes, there's been some controversy that things like Demerol and morphine could release histamine and histamine could give bronchoconstriction. And that is true in bench testing, but it doesn't really seem to be a thing in vivo. All right. Of course, if there's any doubt, then Stadol could be seen as the preferred uh, IV or, or IM medication. So the risk for Demerol and morphine is theoretical, but but it is somewhat legit. And of course, intrapartum, remember that prostaglandin F2 alphas, aka carboprost or hemabate, is a no go. All right, so you cannot use prostaglandin F2s, although uh, prostaglandin E1 and E2s, so things like Cervidil uh, or Prepidil, those seem to be okay. Same thing with Cytotec. Okay, Cytotec as an E1 analog should not cause bronchoconstriction, it's only the F2 alpha derivatives. Well, 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 we are done. So we have covered asthma in pregnancy, the third rule. One third stay the same, one third get better, one third actually deteriorate. And then we've covered the GINA guidelines, which say, man, the answer to asthma is inhaled, low-dose corticosteroids, even for those with intermittent use. So never give them SABA by themselves, always give them their SABA inhaler, and their inhaler of a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, likely in pregnancy, butanicide. All right, everyone, I hope you found that helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. Thank you for your kind messages. Some of those just touched me so much. I'm just so happy to read those because they're super encouraging. Thank you for for those uh, sweet thoughts and, and for reaching out. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.